text of this sermon is the first chapter of the book of Ephesians, beginning at verse 3. The little epistle to the Ephesians is over toward the back of the book. And I think you can find it if you'll start with Revelation and work to the left. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And what we've experienced today in this worship service to this point is exactly what it ought to be like. And I'm getting just a little bit of feedback, Paul. I, um, I hear it here. I like it loud enough that I won't have to really bear down. That's just right. Daniel Amsler, who is the associate pastor and works with the young people, singles and college age in the Evangelical Free Church in Fullerton, came home July the 5th after having an all-day outing with his family. It was late at night. And his wife was getting the children ready for bed. He sat down to watch the 11 o'clock news and just as he clicked his television on, there it was, right in the center of the set, a live picture of the lunar eclipse. And he said they had the moon, you know, right there in the, on the television, and it was a three-quarter eclipse. And he said, I thought, man, I've almost forgotten that lunar eclipse. And so he said, I started outside to, to observe this celestial phenomenon and he got him something cool to drink, a pop, and the lawn, the, uh, lawn chair. And he thought, on the front porch will be the best place I can observe this. And so he sat down on the front porch with his pop and got ready to watch this thing take place. He said, just about that time, his neighbor from across the street came out and he clicked on his flashlight and he opened his tool kit. And he crawled under his old Carver he'd left parked there on the street for months and started to work. He said, I heard him muttering and sputtering underneath there and banging on the bottom of that Carver, occasional four-letter words when the wrench would slip. And he said he must have worked about 45 minutes. He crawled out from under the Carver, snapped off his flashlight, gathered up his toolbox, and went inside and shut the door. Not one time did he ever look up. And he said, here was this celestial drama taking place above him. Some unique event that he probably would never see again in his lifetime. That he could be in on just by looking up. And he spent those moments looking at the bottom side, the belly side of an old carver. I want to direct you this morning to something exciting that's taking place. It's revealed truth from God in the Scripture. And I know all of you have old carvers you need to work on today. And just like this guy, you know, time was getting short and these things have to be taken care of. And I know you've got some work to do on old carvers. But I want to direct you this morning to something that is the most exciting thing in the world and you can be in on it just by looking up. And so I want to begin reading at verse 3, and you'll follow along with me and leave that Bible on your lap. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved, in Him. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heavens, and things upon the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works in all things after the counsel of His will to the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. Now, as a kid being raised on a farm in West Texas, my daddy uh, uh, always planted this huge watermelon patch. And we didn't sell any watermelons, and uh, I don't like watermelons, and we didn't eat very many of them, so there are always watermelons going to waste. And one day my friend came out to visit me from the city. I mean, the city of Mundy, Texas, you know. And he, he came out uh, on a Saturday visit, and, and when he saw that watermelon patch, he just, I mean, he, he really got excited because about as, about as close as he'd ever come to that many watermelons was down at Beatty's Grocery, or when Mr. Clough, the, uh, the peddler, would park his old truck on the corner of the square on Saturday, sell watermelons. I mean, he, he saw more watermelons than he knew he could eat in one time. And so we just started out in that watermelon patch, and this is the way we did. We just came to a watermelon, we'd just break it open, and we'd just get a big chunk right out of the heart of it, and we'd eat that, and then we'd go to the next watermelon, and we'd, we'd call what we call bust them. You know, we'd just break it open, and we'd get another handful of the heart right out of the center of it, and we'd eat that. I, um, I was really kind of disappointed that my father didn't think that was too good of an idea, you know, when he saw the way we ate those watermelons. But I want to do something this morning kind of like that with this text. I just want to break it open and I want us to reach in there and I want to get some big truths out of it just to, just to gaze on. And I think there are a couple of things that we need to understand about this text to begin with. First of all, it's just one solid sentence. All the verses I read comprise one sentence. In the original language, there are no commas or periods to, to uh, divide it. It's just like a song that springs from an angel's throat. It just explodes this doxology out of this man's heart. And he just erupts in one long sentence this marvelous doxology of praise. 
The second thing I want us to know about it before we look at it, take a piece of the heart of it and dissect it is that to understand that when he wrote it, he was under house arrest. And I have a strong suspicion that that's worse than working under carvers at midnight. But out of this house arrest in this marvelous heart of the apostle, there sprang this doxology of praise, and I just want you to gaze at it today. The first thing I want us to gaze at is found in verse 3, and it's this that God is to be blessed because He has blessed us in every conceivable way. Blessed be God. And the word in Greek is eulogites. It means to be well spoken of. And our eulogy comes from that word. Let the God and Father of Jesus Christ be well spoken of. Why? Because He has blessed us. It's the same Greek word, but it has a different tense. And that changes its meaning. When he says that God has blessed us, he uses a tense that refers to action, refers to something he did. And so when we, when we bless God, we speak well of Him. But when He blesses us, it is not that He speaks us good, but that He does us good. And so we bless Him in word because He has blessed us indeed. As the Expositor Greek Testament says it, with every word and thought we bless God because in deed and positive effect He has blessed us. And the source of that blessing, if you notice, is the Holy Spirit. And the scope of that blessing is in heavenly places. And that means that God has brought His blessing down from heaven and has administered it to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Blessings that have their seat where God is. Blessings that are where Jesus reigns have been brought to earth in the person of the Holy Spirit. That means that while we're still on earth in the body, while we're still on earth here, we enjoy in part what we shall experience in heaven in tota. And the source of that blessing is the Holy Spirit. And the sphere of that blessing is Christ Himself in Jesus Christ. That is to say that when a person is in Christ, he enjoys at that time, he becomes a participant in what Christ has done and is himself. Louis Sperry Schaefer said that in Christ, which is the position of everyone who is saved, man receives all that Christ is, all that he has done, and all that he will ever do. That's something, my friend, for you to gaze on. And the second thing that we want to gaze on this morning, take a long look at, is found in verse 4. He chose us. That means that in pre-creation eternity, God purposed to do something special. He purposed in His mind that He would make you His special child. He chose you before you ever were, before there was anything else. He chose you. And that means that you and our name is as eternal as God Himself. Now, I didn't say that you and I are eternal. But it does mean that in eternity past, God had us in His heart for salvation so that our name is as eternal, has been as long as God is and has been. That's something 
to gaze on. He chose you. Now, you didn't have it coming. You and I deserved His his judgment and not His grace, but He chose us because He loved us. I was just pondering the book of Deuteronomy in my quiet time last week because Stephen Alford said that he believes that everything, that all the time Jesus spent in the wilderness, 40 days there in the wilderness without food, that he was pondering the book of Deuteronomy because every answer he gave to Satan was an answer that came from the book of Deuteronomy. And I figured that if Jesus could ponder the book of Deuteronomy, it was good enough for me. And so I was pondering the book of Deuteronomy and I found it in chapter 7. And God said to Israel through Moses, his servant, I did, not, I did not set my heart on you and choose you because you were more in number than the rest of the nations. I set my heart on you and chose you because I love you. That's the only explanation for it. The doctrine of election is a musturion, is a mystery. I'm not going to try to explain it If I could, you couldn't even understand it. I just want you to crawl out from under your car of air and gaze upon the wonder of it. He chose you. You know how wonderful it felt when somebody chose you to be on a team? You remember that? I mean, you know, usually the choosers are the guy with the football and the best athlete. You know, they're the choosers. And how wonderful it felt when you were standing there and he looked over there at you and he said, I'll choose you. And man, you felt so good. You know how bad it felt when, he, when you weren't, choosing, weren't chosen? Weren't choosing. That, that's a good one. That's a good word. Write that down. Just coined one. When you weren't chosen? I mean, 29 people were chosen and, and two of you were left. You and the, 20, and the 90-pound weakling. And, 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 the, and the choosers look and say, you take old Ted Wall and I'll take him. You know, and you know how bad that felt. You, you know how good it felt to be chosen by the outstretched arms of a child, maybe your own or your little nephew. I mean, he's in somebody else's arms and all of a sudden you walk into the room and he holds out his arms and kind of does his hand like that. And what he's saying is, I want you, I accept you, I choose you. Oh, that feels so good. And I've lost count of the number of weddings I performed, but I've never lost the goosebumps that always come when that guy standing down here and out of that door right there down that aisle, the bride comes and the guy's looking at her and she's looking at him and when, he steps, when she steps down here, he reaches out his hand to take her and he's saying, and you can just feel it, just oozing out the pores, I love you, I accept you, I choose you. I want you to gaze on that. This God who made you and created this world, who knows you better than you know yourself, knows all about your imperfections, has reached out His arms in love and He says, I want you, I choose you. That's something to look at. And He's chosen us in in the Beloved, He said, in, in Christ. That's the occasion of that election. And I think that I can illustrate it from my own, from my own youth. Just before two-a-days were to begin my senior year, our assistant coach quit. So they brought this guy in right at the last minute to be our coach. His name was Joe Spann. He, he got us all out on the first morning of two-a-days and got all the, 
the receivers and the tight ends and the defense all on one end of the field. We just had two coaches. And he set us all down in a big circle and he started talking to us. He said, now I don't know any of you, but he said, I'm looking for a bell cow. Now a bell cow is a leader. He said, I want a guy that's be the leader of the defense, captain the defense. And all oh, he went through this big pep talk. And then he said, now I need for you to tell me your name. And so we went around the circle and when he got to me, I said, Gerald Tidwell. He kind of paused. He said, are you any kin to Kelton Tidwell? I said, yes, sir, he's my brother. He played left guard on the district championship team with the Monday Moguls, did Kelton Tidwell. I'm sure you've heard of him. <laughs> and, 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 and playing right guard of the, of, the, of the district championship Monday Mogul team was Joe Spann. They were best of friends. They were co-captains. And they were the last winning team, I suppose, that Monday, Monday Hyde had had. Joe Spann and Calton Tidwell, uh, guards and co-captains. When he heard my name, he just paused and said, you know, Calton Tidwell, he's my brother. He said, you're my bell cow. He said, I'll choose you. I knew I had it made. I mean, now he'd never seen me play. He'd never, he'd never even watched me work out, but he knew my brother and he chose me in him. And in that pre-creation eternity, God chose us in Christ. He looked down at us and He saw not our sin. He saw His beloved and He said, I'll choose you in Him. There's something for you to gaze at. That's the occasion of that election. In order that we might be holy and blameless before Him in love. And that's the object of that election. And the word holy means to be set apart. And the word blameless refers to the kind of animal that was fit for sacrifice. And so he said, I choose you in order that you might be set apart a sacrifice, fit for God's altar. What a marvelous thing is that. Oh, the wonder of it all. That in Christ Jesus, He's not only chosen us for salvation, He's chosen us and set us apart, an object fit for worship on the altar of God and fit for His service. And there's a third thing that you can gaze at this morning. I mean, crawl out from under your car of air now and take a look at this. He's predestined us, in verse 5, to adoption. Now, I don't understand all that's involved in that, but I do know at the germ of that, at the heart of that, it refers to a judicial standing. It, re it, it refers to position. It refers to, a, to the legal context of being chosen legally to become an heir of God and placed in that position. You know any adopted children? It seems to me that what those parents are saying to those children adopted is this, we want to be your resources. Uh, we, we, we want you to go home with us and we won't take care of you. I think that's what the adopters are saying. Um, you know, I, I searched for a passage of Scripture that might be, a, not, might be a foundation for the idea of adoption. And I looked into the little, you know, the little uh, uh, index for, for the word adoption. But you know, there's no better verse of Scripture that just summarizes the idea of adoption than that familiar verse of Scripture in Philippians, My God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And so I see the parents come home of that child adopted and they say to him, maybe not in word, but this is what they're saying anyway. See that crib over there? That's yours. You see that stack of warm blankets? Those are yours. You see all this baby furniture? That's yours. All these toys? Those are yours too. 
Come on down here with me downstairs to the pantry. See all that good food? That's yours. See that television? See this furniture? See this beautiful house? See this clothes we bought? All of that is yours. That's what they're saying. I'm going to take care of you. We're going to be your resources. You don't ever have to fear any longer. What a word. What, what a thing to gaze at. And it seems to me that I can just almost hear God saying in this passage, I own everything in this world that really matters and I'm placing it at your disposal. I'm going to take care of you. And somewhere William Barclay has written about it, that adoption that took place in that Roman world, this is where he said, when the adoption was complete, was complete indeed. The person who had been adopted had all the rights of a legitimate son in his new family and completely lost all rights in his old family. In the eyes of the law, he was a new person. So new was he that even all debts and obligations connected with his previous family were abolished as if they had never existed. What a word! My debts are canceled. That is what Paul says that God has done for us. We were absolutely in the power of sin and of the world. God, through Jesus, took us out of that power into His. And that adoption wipes out the past and makes us new. And it means I have an unobstructed access into divine intimacy. For Paul said in Romans 8 that we have received the adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. It's the most intimate word for Father. It means that I'm a benefactor of that inheritance reserved in heaven and He cannot disinherit me. It means that I'm the object of His love and care. Take a look at that, my friend. Crawl out from under your car of air and gaze on that. Now, I'm not going to try to explain this kind of stuff. I'm just going to hold it out there like a piece of meat from a watermelon and let you look at it. One last thing. One more thing to gaze at. And that's found in verse 7. We have redemption. We have redemption. That's the theme from Genesis to Re Revelation. As the black preacher said, that's the theme from Genesis to Revolutions. That's the word. From the Garden of Eden to the Isle of Patmos and every stop in between, there's the word redemption. So that, so that God doesn't want us to, get to look away too far from the cross, you see, from redemption. When He said to Eve, your seed will bruise the serpent's head, He was talking about atonement. And when he told them to kill animals and cover themselves with skin, take life to cover them, he was talking about redemption, atonement. And when Moses sprinkled the blood on the doorpost, he was referring to redemption, blood redemption. And when he organized in the wilderness the sacrifices in the tabernacle, he was pointing to sacrifice, to redemption, to atonement. And when Isaiah sang that marvelous messianic song about the suffering servant. He was talking about the Redeemer. And when Hosea went into the far land to buy his wife back, who had sold herself to become the possession of another, and not only bought her out of slavery, but restored her to the position of a bride, he was referring to redemption. For the word means to release or to set free effected by the payment of a price. He paid it all. He doesn't want us to get too far away from looking at that. 
And when you turn away and gaze upon something other than that, he, doesn't, he, he keeps drawing us back, for He's given us two symbols in the church, and both of them refer to atonement. The broken body, the shed blood, the buried and resurrected Christ. Redemption. Charles Spurgeon told his students, preaching students, I just take my text anywhere in the Bible and I make a beeline to the cross. A mother just finished reading her, Bible, her child a Bible story. She had read th- through the days stories from the Bible. His marvelous birth, his little earthly childhood, his sinless life, his death on Calvary. And the little girl said to her mother, that's the saddest story we've read, but I like it best of all. I had a man preach a revival for me by the name of Walter K. Ayers. Walter K. Ayers uh, was Barry Switzer's roommate. That ought to get you back with me. That ought to, that ought to wake you up. He was Barry Switzer's roommate, and he won Freddie Akers to the Lord. Now that turned you off, I know, a coach of Texas. Walter K. Ayers was converted and finished high school after his conversion at the age of 22. We went out to witness to visit this man in a little trailer house. When we sat down and started talking to him, he gave us all these kinds of of excuses. He gave us a hard time. Right in the middle of our discussion, Walter K. Ayers started talking about the cross. I've never heard anything like it, before or since. He talked about those nails in his hand, those thorns on his brow. He just laid it out there, and I never heard anything like it. On the way back to the church, he said, when my grandmother heard that I'd surrendered to preach, I was illiterate. He said, I couldn't even write my name. And he said, my grandmother said to me, Walter K., I was about 19 or 20 years old at the time, he said, Walter K., what's going to happen when you start preaching and those intelligent people, those smart folks, start asking questions? Walter K. said, I don't know what I'll do. And he said, grandmother told me right then, when that happens, Walter you just head straight to the cross. That's just what he did. I will sing of my Redeemer and His wondrous love for me. On the cruel cross He suffered from the curse to set me free. I will tell the wondrous story how my lost estate to save. In His boundless love and mercy He the ransom freely gave. I will sing of my Redeemer. And um, he said, through his blood he redeemed us. that's, That's the means of that redemption, through his blood. And, And he said, The forgiveness of sin, that's the manner of that redemption. He took our sin away. According to the riches of His grace, which He continues to lavish upon us, that's the measure of that redemption. Listen, and I'm through. Toscanini had just finished conducting Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And the people leaped to their feet. 
and there was, an, a, there was a thunderous applause and acceptance. He had the orchestra stand several times. He himself took several bows and the crowd was still applauding, shouting. And in the thunder of that, Toscanini leaned over the lectern and stared at his orchestra. And his eyes were flashing and there was an intensity on his face. And they thought, we've offended him. We've done something wrong. Well, he spoke. They could hardly hear him. He was, he was so emotional. But he kind of whispered, Toscanini is nothing. Now that was a, that was a, that was a disclosure. He, he had a tremendous ego. And, and, and then he said, you are nothing. And that was no surprise. He told them that every week. And then he bowed his head and with emotion he said, Beethoven is everything. I want you just to take that verse of Scripture and I want to stretch it out here. I want you to look at it. And in my prayer time, I have praised and I have blessed Him because He has blessed us in every conceivable way for He's adopted us, predestined to adoption. He has chosen us and He's redeemed us for forgiveness of sin through His blood. He is everything. He's everything. Would you bow with me pray? Heavenly Father, we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene, and wonder how He could love us, a sinner, unclean. Oh, how marvelous! Oh, how wonderful! And my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous! Oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Thank you, Father, for what He has done. Thank you, God, indeed, for what you've done. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Now, there are three invitations that we offer in the First Baptist Church. The first invitation is for those of you who have never professed, never confessed your faith in Jesus Christ. You've never trusted Him for salvation. You've never come to say, I am a sinner. I'm separated from God. I'm lost. I cannot save myself. And so I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ for my salvation. I believe in Jesus and I commit myself to Him. We'll ask you to come and make that kind of commitment this morning, that kind of faith trust. The second invitation is for those of us this morning who need to place our life in a church. Is it important? It's so important that Jesus died for the church. We'll ask you to come this morning to say, I feel God leading me to place my life here to serve God together with you. And the third invitation is for those of us who are already Christians, but we spend our life on the underbelly of an old carver. 
And we've placed our focus on that which really doesn't matter. We've missed out on God's drama of redemption. And I'll invite you to come to say, I want to rededicate myself to God, place myself back in the center of God's will for my life. These are the invitations. Now the response is totally yours while we stand to sing. You come.